Welcome to Profiles. I'm Leah Johnson. Today we'll be exploring race and identity, from the push for national social justice to local efforts to diversify Indiana. We'll hear from Dr. Lillian Dunlap, one of the driving forces behind the establishment of the African American Arts Institute here at Indiana University, and Dr. Tyron Cooper, the current director of the IU Soul Review. We'll hear from my granny, a woman who got a front row seat to the civil rights movement out of the South, and author and filmmaker Bridgette Davis on how this generation can sustain a movement of our own. And finally, author Janet Chatham-Bell reads an essay about her father. Lillian Dunlap is one of the driving forces behind the establishment of the African American Arts Institute at Indiana University and she currently serves as an affiliate faculty member at the Pointer Institute, specializing in teaching diversity strategies. I spoke with her about what Bloomington looked like during her time at Indiana University. So let's talk about how the Institute came to be. Um, Where did it come from, and what was Mm. your role in its creation? That's a great question. I've been thinking about that uh, quite a bit uh, in the last few weeks. The Institute came about uh, really after the IU Soul Review sort of concept came came about. And, you know, the IU Soul Review was begun by Dr. Portia Maltzby, who has uh, recently retired from here and, and, and moved on. Um, uh, Portia came to the to the university while I was working at the uh, School of Music at the Black Music Center. Uh, she came and brought her band and and played, and uh, then there was a lot of discussion about uh, her music and and her uh, and her organization. And Dr. Hudson, bless his heart, Dr. Herman Hudson, complete visionary, uh, engaged her in a conversation about coming to Indiana as a faculty member, and engaged her in a conversation about starting a band. And, and one of the reasons that uh, the Soul Review was I- even brought up or the notion of the Soul Review was brought up was because for years, starting in the late 60s, there would be uh, waves of African-American students who would come to the campus. And uh, there wasn't really much on the campus that was aimed at them or that, uh, that satisfied some of the uh, entertainment needs that they required. And so they began to have these little talent shows in the dormitories or, or wherever they could uh, organize them. Uh, one of the uh, early originators of those talent shows is named, uh, a guy named Dr. Kenneth Ware, and he now lives in California. Uh, but he and I were talking about it a few days ago, and there were these uh, – he had organized some of the talent shows. So – the kids would have these talent shows, and they would just be great, great talent from Indianapolis and, and Gary and other places, but very disorganized. So what Dr. Hudson saw was an opportunity to take that extracurricular activity and turn it into a curricular activity. And so he encouraged Portia to um, uh, come to Indiana and start the Soul Review, and she did do that. And that was um, in 1971. After sort of the the, the clear uh, growth and success of the of the Soul Review, uh, Dr. Hudson and I started talking about well, let's do more of this because at that time the Soul Review, by 1972 73, 
Soul Review had been traveling and uh, we had dancers included in the review because the whole idea of the Soul Review was kind of to be like the James Brown Review because the James Brown Review was very hot <laughs> around that time. And this was supposed to be an answer to the James Brown Review uh, for students. And so we had all kinds of acts in the in the show. Um, and uh, one of them was the dancers that just danced with the uh, with the uh, uh, rhythm section and the horns. Let me not leave them out or I'll hear from them. Uh, but so with the entire band and just the, the dancers. Uh, so this was sort of the – when Dr. Hudson and I started talking about the African-American Arts Institute, it was an opportunity to have not only the Soul Review – but then, oh, let's have a dance company. And while we're at it, let's, uh, you know, at some point have a, a choral ensemble. Uh, and so we, he and I started to work on the original proposal. Um, I was then working at the music school. So we worked on it. I worked on it on weekends or after hours so that we could really put down what it was that we wanted. And we were very meticulous about it. At one point, uh, we had big sheets of paper that sort of outlined year by year and sometimes month by month about how we wanted the institute to look. Uh, and the idea was the African-American Arts Institute should be such a presence, presence on the campus that it draws tremendous att attention to the black cultural arts so it was never an institute set up for black people. It was an institute set up for black music, black dance, black, uh, black choral music, black instrumental music, so that people could see it and uh, see it in its proper context and, and have access to it. And the access would be through the performances of the ensembles, but also uh, with the uh, collaboration with the Black Music Center. And then the Black Music Center became part of the Institute. We published books. Uh, we had a fabulous art exhibit, uh, for example, um, in uh, one of the museums here. So there was every attempt to put black arts on a, uh, in a place where people had access to it. Uh, to them and also could understand them in, in the context, in the historical context as well as the cultural context. So that's what we had in mind. We had a really big vision. That's a huge vision. That's a huge vision. Um, were you modeling it after any other school? Had we seen this anywhere else before? Or was this like, this is the birthplace of something like this? What we had seen at other schools because by the time we did the African American Arts Institute, the year before, uh, Dr. Hudson, I, he was just everywhere. He was vice chancellor of, uh, for African American Affairs. He was also uh, chair of the, the new African American uh, Studies Department, which is now um, uh, African American and African, African diaspora. Diaspora, right, included and should have been. Um, and so in 73, the Black Culture Center opened. That was an experience because uh, the Black Culture Center, you're, you're actually, you haven't been here long enough to know, the other Black Culture Center, the old one, was an old fraternity house. Uh, and I have to say that the fraternity house was left in very poor condition. Uh, I don't know why. I hope just because it fell apart. But at any rate, um, we found that house uh, 
with a lot of help. Uh, the university allowed us to have that house, and it needed tremendous renovation uh, and, and got it. And so the Black Culture Center was there, and other campuses had talked about, and some other campuses even had Black Culture Centers. So in terms of pattering, patterning ourselves after something, the Black Culture Center was something we knew that other campuses had sought to have. I must say, though, that the Black Culture Center, even the old one, was among the nicer uh, black culture centers that I saw at Purdue or Indiana State or Ohio State or any of the campuses that we had pretty good relationships with. Uh, but none of those schools had an African-American Arts Institute. And I dare say it would have been very difficult for them to come up with it. So it was – you said it was created because there was there seemed to be this hole. Um, yes. How how have you seen the institute fill that hole, that void, since it's been created? Has it done its job? Mm. Well, I certainly would never say that that it has done its job because right. there's there's future for it to have. I will say though that um, uh, thinking about the institute's uh, ensembles in the early days, we attracted a very diverse audience. Uh, early on, and that was not common on this campus. So I was always very encouraged by that. Uh, as I said, the ensembles were uh, never designed only for African-American students, and all of the ensembles always had uh, students who were not black, and I always liked that because our intention, as I said, was to get the word out to really bring more people to the notion of, uh, to the idea that African-American arts were accessible. And so I, um, I like the idea that it, uh, that it brought in more of the campus community. I also was always thrilled that the ensembles traveled. Now, we didn't travel very far to begin with. Let me just say that. But back in the early 70s, even going over to the west side was a travel, <laughs> was a trip in, uh, in the early days. And I always liked the, the idea that we would, we would always have an early concert at what was then called the West Side Center uh, and, uh, draw, and then drew in the whole West Side community into the uh, into the performance. And in the early days also, we routinely played for activities and events that were sponsored by the Black Faculty and Staff Organization, which we loved. They were among our biggest and loudest uh, uh, fans and promoters. And, and I thought that was, uh, you know, that was always a good sign for us. I don't know. Like, what was the energy like, I guess? Because those are things you can't pick up in a book. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, how did it feel to be a part of, like, all this change? Well, I think a lot of students who were on campus, a great question. I think a lot of the, the black students who were on campus understood that they were here because of what had happened before they got here, because of the 60s, because uh, people marched and and got thrown in jail and so forth. Uh, and because of um, uh, you know, lots of people who didn't get there, who didn't get to come to college. So I think there was a, uh, there was a sense that 
they were the new you know, you know now that we're now we're in the 70s it's new the that we have a new game now uh now uh now we really can demand some of the things that we want to have happen uh, now there are enough of us on campus to uh make noise in Dunmeadow <laughs> and, and uh call people's attention to things i think there was a I don't know. There was a there was a mood of um, I, I would empowerment to to uh, some degree. Certainly, a greater degree than earlier. When, if you were an African American student on the campus, you were one of very few African American students on the campus, and and so you understood that. But uh, one of the big f- uh, fueling agents was the uh, groups program. That started in with groups, nineteen sixty nine, or I guess there was. I think there was a small group in sixty eight, but then there was the group of sixty nine, and then the groups program progressed, uh, and that program brought in uh, a goodly number of African American students. All of the group students were not were not black, but a good good percentage of them were. That helped. You're listening to a conversation with Dr. Lillian Dunlap. She's one of the founding members of the African American Arts Institute and has also served as a national seminar leader for the Radio and Television News Directors Association's News Management Seminars for Journalists of Color and Women. I sat down with her to discuss the evolution of Indiana University's black community. You've done your fair share of work in the field of journalism, but also inside of the classroom. What is that transition like from going from making the news happen to teaching people how to make news? Wow. Well, let me just say this. Because you can make the news happen or cover the news doesn't really mean that you can teach it. So I learned that pretty quickly as well. But I certainly – I love journalism uh, I love what journalism can do, uh, and one of the reasons that I'm still working a lot with journalists and and um, media professionals is that I I know the impact that what we do can have on people, and and the impact that it can have on how people think about anything. So it's a it's an important uh, it's an important role. And of course, I'm particularly sensitive to how we as journalists report on uh, people and events that are different from ourselves and the events that we like. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think it is uh, as important now as it ever was that we include people and include the broadest spectrum of people in our reporting, uh, that we are um, seeking out stories that are not on the surface, stories that, you know, the story behind the story and the the untold stories of people uh, across the spectrum, and that we're careful about our language because it matters. It matters how we uh, label people incorrectly, how we marginalize people with our language. So I won't go on and on about uh, journalism and and diversity, but I think it is a serious, serious issue. And as long as I'm able, I'm going to be talking about it. 
That was Dr. Lillian Dunlap, one of the founders of IU's African American Arts Institute. During our conversation, Dr. Dunlap mentioned the importance of IU's Soul Review. The Soul Review has been a staple of IU's black community for more than 40 years. WFIU's Deshaun Wells recently spoke with the current director of the IU Soul Review, Dr. Tyron Cooper. So can you just give us a brief description of what you've done and who you are? My name is Tyron Cooper. I am a, an assistant professor uh, here in African-American, African Diaspora Studies uh, Department at Indiana University. I'm also the director of the IU Soul Review, which is a performance ensemble that is dedicated to the exploration and the performance of black popular music, uh, primarily post-World War II to the present. I also have been involved in the music and broader entertainment industry really for the past really almost all my life if you want to if you want to look at it uh the way i look at it which is uh my family uh, had a gospel ensemble a gospel group the cooper singers when i was growing up so i grew up in the music business so to speak as a child touring the east coast of the united states with my family's group and then as i got older got into recording with other artists and participating in other genres of music from R&B to to blues to pop you know <laughs> so you know I had a very extensive music uh, experience uh, artistic experience and so I continue to do that within the industry uh, working with different artists various genres but also I uh, compose film score as well so it's very broad experience in, in my in my assessment of where I have come from to where I am now. So um, I'm just really thankful to be here. That's perfect, perfect. So you have a really rich background with mm. your family history mm. with music. Tell me more about your educational pursuits with music because, mm. it's, you know, IU. Tell us more about that. Right, right. Well, I have a uh, bachelor's of, of music and music education from historical black college uh, university, Bethune-Cookman Uni- University. It was Bethune-Cookman College uh, when I was there. <laughs> so I'm getting old now, right? <laughs> and then I have a... A master's uh, in jazz studies from Indiana University and a Ph.D. in ethnomusicology uh, from Indiana University. So I'm somewhat Indiana University bred uh, in yeah, a sense, uh, but it's all, it all started off with Bethune-Cookman. And uh, where are you from again? I am actually originally from, from South Carolina, Florence, South Carolina. I was born in Florence, South Carolina, and I grew up in Florida, uh, Lake Worth, a small town called Lake Worth, Florida, Right in Palm Beach County, about about maybe fifteen miles from West Palm Beach. Okay, yeah. great, great. So when you came here, you were already living in Indiana, correct? When I came here, actually, no, I came up in nineteen ninety six to to complete my master's degree in jazz studies. So ninety six through ninety eight, then I went back to Bethune Cookman and I taught there for one year. During the course of that year. Uh, Dr. Uh, Charles Sykes called me up and asked me if I uh, wanted to audition to uh, or interview for the position as the Soul Review Director. So I ended up coming up and and I got that position in 1999. I, I uh, served as the Soul Review Director from 1999 to 2005 before I went back to school to complete my Ph.D. work. 
Wonderful, wonderful. So that's that's breaking to the Soul Review now because mm-hmm. that's the meat of it. Yeah. Tell me more about the Soul Review, the history of the Soul Review, uh, where where you see it's, it's came from, mm-hmm. and where you trying to take it to. Oh, the history of the Soul Review is uh, the Soul Review started in 1971. Dr. Portia Malsby was the founding director. I think she uh, directed the Soul Review for about ten years. It's really interesting because when I conceptualize the Soul Review currently. Mm-hmm. I'm always, for some reason, hearkening back to the 70s. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I jump over the 90s, I jump over the 80s, <laughs> and I go right to the 70s. And I think that's because that's where that richness was. That's where the core identity of the Soul Review is situated. We still have people, uh, Soul Review members from the 1970s that come back to our concerts. They share with us those stories, that history, that, that richness, that cultural reality that was in, in which the Soul Review emerged mm-hmm. in 1971. It was a lot going on there, sociopolitically. So to imagine a, an ensemble performing black music on Indiana University's campus in 1971. It's powerful. It's powerful. But that tradition still remains. We're continuing the legacy. So we still do music from that particular era because that's at that core of of who we are, the music of the 60s, the music of the different struggles that was during that time. But also we look at how the music has evolved, how those same ideas have been have been reinterpreted for our current realities. Mm. You know, so you got Lauren Hill talking about black rage. Mm-hmm. You know, you got John Legend and Common talking about glory, you know, mm-hmm. and speaking right directly to our current circumstance. You got D'Angelo with Black Messiah, yes. you know, yes. and so you have all of these rich, again, socially, politically, and culturally fruitful and fervent expressions yeah. that come right out of our community. That's what Soul Review is about. It's about operating within a black performance tradition to elucidate the black life reality. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's, what, that's what that ensemble is designed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the greatest things, that I, and I'm finding out this more and more currently uh, as, I, as I teach, the Soul Review has the ability to express certain things that cannot be expressed in verbal dialogue. It's art. So it's easier to talk about issues of race, mm-hmm. politics, mm-hmm. you know, and so all those things that define, you know, kind of who we are as, you know, various cultures within this American social fabric. Soul Review has that ability to talk about it and bring people together in a way that leads them to synthesize this reality against their very own realities, mm-hmm. uh, against the, the, the structure of American society, against the, the, against the, the, the uh, experience of, of, of a broader humanity. Mm-hmm. So if you has that ability to bring people together to experience the certain realities um, that others just find it very difficult to talk about. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. issues of race, man, it's hard to deal with oh, yeah. sometimes, you know, oh, yeah. and, and really listen. Because, mm-hmm. you know, people say, well, you know, we having a dialogue, but you're not. You're talking. Mm-hmm. Dialogue needs a consciousness and a respectful listening dimension. Mm-hmm. And the soul of you will have you listening 
and then you can respond in in various ways, you know. But one of the things is you're internalizing, you're synthesizing this this reality, and you take that home with you, and uh, and everybody is better for it. Mm-hmm. I agree. I want, I want to talk about this black performance tradition. Mm-hmm. Can you please just elaborate more of, you know, what that black performance tradition is mm-hmm. and, and how the students are acclimating to that? Mm-hmm. When I say the black performance tradition, I'm talking about a certain aesthetic uh, sensibility, a certain qualitative experience that happens within a performance that operates within the framework of the core uh, African-American culture, understanding that black folk are not a monolithic construct, right? We're mm-hmm. diverse. But there is a core experience that black folk tend to have in the United States. If you think about it's more kind of conducive to the southern black experience, that core black folk that were that had a more kind of autonomous environment where they were free to express themselves uh, in various ways that uh, reflected more of an African heritage, an African way of, of, of living, an African way of viewing the world. And so if we fast forward up until our very present time and all throughout before that time, we look at a certain qualitative experience, uh, certain things like call and response, uh, certain things like the, there's a participatory uh, dimension to this music that it's not a spectator sport, you know, mm-hmm. that you have to engage this uh, art form. So you're going to have people that screaming out, oh, yeah, you better mm-hmm. sing. You might have people mm-hmm. dancing. You might have people crying. All of that is a part of the experience. They contribute to that experience by, by, ex- by, by exhibiting such, like, demonstrative behavior. Mm-hmm. But they also evaluate the experience by what they're doing. So if you're not receiving a certain response for the audience, that says something to the performance. That says some, uh, something about the type of qualitative experience that you're putting forth. Yes. So it has to be this give and take. So all of that is with under the heading of, an, uh, of, 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 of a black aesthetic framework. And so when we talk about the black performance tradition, that's what I'm trying to get at in short. Uh, there's so many things that... that contribute to this idea of the black aesthetic experience, and it evolves. It's dynamic. The, there are so many experiences that coexist. Like, while I'm singing, while I'm performing hip-hop, I'm also singing the blues. Mm-hmm. You know, while I'm uh, singing the blues, there is a sacredness about the blues as well. Mm-hmm. You know, while I'm singing uh, the Negro spiritual, there is a certain uh, secularization of the Negro spiritual as I talk about getting free in the physical, in the natural. So I'm not necessarily dealing with the spiritual on certain levels, but then at times I'm dealing with both because mm-hmm. there is this fluidity of sacred and secular. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, it, I mean, it's so many things that encompass uh uh, the black performance tradition, but from the if I had to just just define it quickly, it would be uh, a performance that operates within a uh, black uh, aesthetic framework. We'll close from there. Again, thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was WFIU's Deshaun Wells speaking with Dr. Tyron Cooper, director of the IU Soul Review. This next conversation runs close to my own heart. I recently went to visit my granny in Nashville, Tennessee, and like most families during the holidays, we couldn't help jumping into a discussion about current events. After the recent events in Ferguson spurred the Black Lives Matter hashtag and a nationwide push for more police transparency, 
we seem to be in the middle of a new generation of activism. So I asked my granny what this civil rights movement looks like to her. My granny isn't too fond of me spending my time reporting on race relations in America. The world she sees, the world she's always seen, is in much different shades of black and white than the one I live in. As a black woman growing up in 1942, she was born into a family of sharecroppers on the wrong side of the Mason-Dixon line. And for most of my life, I only knew the basics about what that meant, about her and about me. But this Christmas, I finally got the chance to really sit down with her. The first time we've ever opened up the dialogue about what her civil rights struggle means for mine. When I started noticing things like this was after I got in junior high and high school when we started going downtown and other places where we would see the signs, white only, and uh, we couldn't go in and buy at the counters. The places where you ate, you could buy, but you couldn't sit down at the counter like the whites did and eat. You had to buy it, take it somewhere else, and eat it. See, But this was after I got up in junior high in the first couple of years of high school. So you told me before that, like, once you got to junior high and high school and stuff, that, like, um, like it was, that's just the way it was, you know what I mean? Like, you, Yeah, that, you to didn't... me, that, that was just the way life was, because that's all I ever knew or encountered. I just thought that was normal for, uh, to see, to not be able to sit down and eat or sit in the back of the bus, the city bus. Because it was already happening when I real when I noticed it, it was already happening. So to me, it seemed like the normal thing to do. What was your idea? Like, what had you thought about race? Like, being a black person, like, was that something you had thought about before, or was it just like no? I did. You, when you're born into it, and and that's the way it is. You don't even. I didn't even think about it. I just went along with all the others. You know, like being a maid. Seeing that most blacks were most maids were black, most most blacks took care of kids, white kids, and you just do it, clean their houses and things like this. When you're born into it, you just do it. It's just that's just a part of life. But when then when I did realize we're doing this because we have never tried to do anything better. No one has ever ever tried to make things better for the blacks. So. It's when it really started and it hit me, we have to do it in order to move up. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I mean, let's, let's jump forward. Let's stay on that, that train of thought since you brought it up. What about, what about the, the protest movements that are happening right now in Ferguson and New York and the sit in the, in the die-ins and all the, you know, what about the movements that are occurring right now? Like, what does that look like to you? To me, and I'm speaking totally my thoughts, mm-hmm. Gurner. I can understand them getting angry about that. But what good is protesting? In another month, the whole thing will be over. So why go through all these changes? Because it's going to happen again. Not much we can do about it. But Granny, by that logic, what you guys were doing in the '60s wasn't didn't make sense either. You know, it's I mean, yeah, like, but we were doing it for a cause. We were trying to better ourselves. Yeah, it was it, that had to be done. Oh, we'd still be, we would still be um, probably standing outside eating a hamburger while everybody else is sitting in. See, those, these are the basics 
of living, the basics. But what my thing is like, you were there during the civil rights movement. Like you, you were there the first time this kind of stuff comes yeah. up when black people are like, "Wow, you know, we're getting treated unjustly." So like, mm-hmm. we have to start making moves towards it. I, it's the same. It's the same idea to me now. It's just a different. It's just a different generation. It just looks different than mm-hmm. it did back then. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Look at it this way. Like I said, then we were fighting for the basics to live equally as anyone else on the planet or in the world or in the United States. What are they fighting for now? You said they're fighting for what now? So they can so they won't get shot? Yeah. They're fighting to be able to live and I think that is They're the living. They just gotta learn how to live right. Okay, how about this guy? They got Obama, Obama, Obama. My granny believes in what is known in the social justice world as respectability politics. The idea that if people of color behave a certain way or wear a certain type of clothing, we should, for the most part, be safe from police harassment. I don't necessarily agree. But I guess it's just part of the generational divide. And that's okay, because the more common these conversations become in my house, the more I understand that my struggle in the fight of this generation didn't start with Ferguson. And it definitely doesn't end there. That was me, Leah Johnson, and my granny, Lorraine Proctor. Bridgette Davis is the critically acclaimed writer, director, and producer behind the film Naked Acts. The film is hailed as a seminal work in Black cinema. She's also the author of the novels Shifting Through Neutral and Into the Go Slow. I spoke to Bridgette in September 2014 about how she uses her work to reflect the times and how social media is changing the way we tell our stories. What can we do as people to make a difference? Like, it's cool to it's cool to do the things where we tweet about the things that matter to us and we put it on Tumblr and we reblog and we repost and we Instagram it. But what what can we do? Like, what is our role in this, um, you know, this citizen journalism, people's revolution type of thing? There are a lot of things you could do. There absolutely are. And I think that what you have to do first is to decide what matters to you most? What is the issue that ca- that you care about that really um, gets you angry? You know, Naked X was born out of anger. <laughs> I was angry that there weren't more images of women that I recognized on the big screen. That was the impetus for everything that came after. And also, I would say to you, it's an exciting time to be in journalism. Scary, because where are the jobs? <laughs> But also exciting because everything is just busting open and there are no, like, norms necessarily. Something is going to emerge from this. And you're on the ground level. You can be part of what it becomes ultimately. So I would really recommend that you find that issue and then, you know, amplify your thoughts about it out there. Absolutely, you can do something. You can be a citizen journalist who goes to a hot spot 
and tweets in real time about what's occurring. That matters. Is there something out there that's happening that you feel isn't providing a perspective that you would understand uniquely? Finding out what you can uniquely provide is a great way to figure out what to do and then to be a necessary voice in the conversation. You must join the conversation. You must. I don't understand any young person right now without a blog or a Tumblr, you know, or and not just Twitter. I think that if you're a journalist, you're young, you care, because isn't that why you chose journalism, because you care? Then you need to be amplifying an issue vis-a-vis your point of view, your lens. It's, I'm sorry to be hardcore about this, but it's inexcusable to not be out there with your voice on a regular basis, whatever it is. It doesn't mean people, young people sometimes think, I don't know what I could say about these political issues. And I say, who mentioned politics? Maybe your issue is just about that piece of the world that you understand that no one else seems to be talking about. But you care. You know that world. Get out there. Put your put your voice out there. You know? Yeah. I don't know if you've seen this on Twitter, but it's like, stay woke, you know? Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Stay <laughs> woke. Well, it's like, and... Like, we consider ourselves pretty much woke, mm-hmm. but, like, um, as woke people, I feel like they're, they're just as a line between just being aware and, like, telling other people to be aware and then, like, our actual actions. Yeah, but, because it's scary, isn't it? It's like, well, okay, yeah, I did like that. I clicked like. <laughs> I, I, like, you know, um, forwarded it around, you know, but that isn't necessarily doing anything. You're right. I think a lot of us feel that you can feel like you're being an activist because you're liking something, putting it up on your wall, you know, um, retweeting it. And I don't think that that's enough. What I do think is there's no one way to contribute. And don't get caught up in this notion that you have to be doing a certain something. But find the thing that you can do that makes you feel like you're making a contribution. Whatever it is, what can you and a small group of friends who care equally about something do to begin to build conversation around that issue and then become more activists, perhaps, and actually um, start campaigns or do fundraising for things that you care about or writing series of pieces that you then crowdsource and get others to help fund for more reporting and investigation of issues? I can't imagine how someone today couldn't figure out how to make have an impact. Like, like maybe you need to get a little more angry. Yeah, because the anger will lead you toward what you believe needs to happen. That was author and filmmaker Bridgette Davis. Janet Chatham-Bell is a writer. Her personal essays and books of Black quotations have inspired many people. Scholar, critic, and filmmaker Henry Louis Gates Jr. has called Bell one of his heroes. For this broadcast, she contributes an essay about her father. It comes from her latest book, Bell Reads Her Essay. Remembering Daddy. Smith Henry Cheatham. 
It doesn't matter who my father was. It matters who I remember he was. When I left Indiana in 1964, I felt like Frederick Douglass did in 1838 when he escaped slavery. At the time, Douglass said, for the moment, the dreams of my youth and the hopes of my adulthood were completely fulfilled. The bonds that had held me were broken. A new world had opened upon me. My bonds, of course, were emotional rather than physical, but the feelings of freedom and possibility were the same. Now I could discover myself and be whoever I wanted to be. The people I met would have no preconceived expectations about how the daughter of, the sister of, a Southsider should behave. I would not have to hear my mother's opinion of every decision I made and feel the guilt of having disappointed her yet again. Most of all, in a new place, I could relax knowing there was nobody to report my whereabouts to Daddy. I swear everybody in Indianapolis either knew him or knew about him. So I was always wary that something I might do would embarrass or make him ashamed of me. My first home on my own was in Saginaw, Michigan, where I learned there were places with even thinner views of the world than Indianapolis. Several months after I'd moved away, my siblings and I were called home because Daddy was ill. Stump Brothers Meat Packers, where Daddy had worked for more than 40 years, were preparing to close and had laid off their workers. The small family business had no retirement plan. For the first time in four decades, Daddy was without an income. He'd never made much money, working two and sometimes three jobs to take care of four growing children. When Stumps laid him off, he was 62 years old, and he panicked. How would he get another job at his age? He didn't consider retiring early on his Social Security because he was just a few years away from paying off the mortgage on the new house he'd had built in 1959. In his desperation, Daddy took the first job he could find, working as a janitor in a high school. It was too strenuous for a man who hadn't lifted anything heavier than a grandbaby for many years. He collapsed at work. Daddy, go ahead and retire. We'll take care of the house note. The four of us had a quick meeting and decided that each of us could easily chip in $25 a month to make the $93 payment. We told Daddy what we decided. Oh, no. Daddy was emphatic. Parents take care of their children, not the other way around. But, Daddy, you've worked hard all your life and taken good care of us. It's not a problem for us. We want to do it. I tried to convince Daddy that it would be our pleasure to pay his note. He wouldn't have it. I can take care of myself. Smith Henry Cheatham migrated from Tennessee to Indianapolis in 1922, seeking a better life in the city. His family labored as sharecroppers all of his life and were no better off than when they started. By the time he was 19, Daddy was tired of working that hard without getting anywhere. He was the oldest son and, as was the practice, went to work in the tobacco fields beside his parents as soon as he was big enough, about nine years old. 
His education ended with fourth grade. Daddy arrived in a city that was as rigidly segregated as any place in Tennessee and that soon became the national headquarters of a resuscitated Ku Klux Klan. Smith Cheatham took it in stride. Racial oppression was an integral part of Negro life, and he got on about the business of living. He found work, married, had four children. When each day's labors were finished, he spent countless hours helping to improve circumstances in his community. He loved people and would chat up anybody, black or white, which was unusual in a segregated city in pre-civil rights movement America. In 1939, when he decided to buy a house for his growing family, he found a place he could afford not far from Stumps in a, quote, white, unquote, neighborhood. Somehow he convinced the real estate agent to sell it to him. At six feet, he was the tallest in his family, towering over both parents and his nine siblings. His muscles would be the envy of today's most buff athletes. But Daddy never spent a minute in a gym. He earned his muscles the old-fashioned way, by working hard and long at jobs that these days are assigned to machines. Although he may have been briefly between jobs, Daddy was never unemployed not even during the Great Depression. He would do anything to earn a living so long as it was, as he called it, honest work. He got his first job in Indianapolis after he had repeatedly been refused employment on a construction site. Daddy knew that if they saw how hard and efficiently he worked, he'd be hired. So he picked up an unused wheelbarrow, filled it with sand, and delivered it to where the concrete was being mixed. He did this a few times, and he was hired that day. My older brother got into serious trouble when he was 14. He was taunted by a group of white boys in our neighborhood. Because he was outnumbered, he pulled out his knife and swung it, cutting the boy closest to him just below his heart. In 1946, this kind of thing could get a black man locked up for life if not lynched. For several nights, gangs of whites drove past our house blowing their horns and yelling threats, but it never went beyond that, possibly because they suspected we might fight back. Daddy hired a friend of his who was one of Indianapolis's best lawyers. In arguing his case before the judge, the lawyer compared the background and families of my brother and the boy he'd cut. With the city's influential blacks speaking and writing letters on our family's behalf, It was no contest. My brother spent the night he was arrested in jail, paid the injured boy's medical expenses, and that was that. None of the white boys in the neighborhood ever picked a fight with him again. Integrity and reliability were important to Daddy. He often said, a man's word is his bond. Because he was so trustworthy, he was the dues-collecting financial secretary of his Masonic Lodge for 25 years. They wouldn't have anybody else doing it until Daddy personally recommended and trained a young man to replace him. Black folk in the area came to Daddy for help with their problems. Because Daddy knew so many well-connected people, he was often able to offer assistance or send them to someone who could provide what they needed. When he became a notary public, His local status as mayor of the South Side seemed official. 
Daddy started a thriving chitlin business when he discovered that his employer was discarding the hog guts. Whenever Daddy bought a car, he'd negotiate the best possible cash deal with the auto salesman, then get a no-interest loan from Stumps to consummate it. Using his charm and persuasive powers, he was regularly a top fundraiser for the Senate Avenue colored YMCA, despite his limited education. Except for my son, Kamal, who was born eight months before Daddy died and clearly inherited his spirit, as well as several of his physical characteristics, I've never known a more resourceful person than Smith Cheatham. After Daddy's collapse at his new job, there was nothing we could say to convince him to take our money. So I decided to approach the problem from another angle. A few months earlier, Daddy had been honored with a testimonial dinner at the Fall Creek YMCA, for his outstanding contributions to the progress of Indianapolis. While working as a butcher and at any other manual labor he could find to support his family, Daddy had fed his intellect and desire for meaning with a commitment to volunteer work. Among the many roles he took on to help improve his community were founder and president of the Southeast Civic League, board chairman of the Senate Avenue and later Fall Creek YMCA, and chairman of the deacon board and superintendent of the Sunday school at our church. While my brothers were growing up, he took them and other neighborhood boys to the Y every Saturday. It seemed to me that a man who had given so much might be due some consideration with his present dilemma. So I made an appointment to see Frank Lloyd. Dr. Lloyd was a physician and president of Methodist Hospital, the state's largest health care facility. He was what you might call Indianapolis's Negro-in-Chief, the best-connected black man in the city. I told him about Daddy's many years of volunteer work and his current situation. Since Daddy insisted on working, I asked Dr. Lloyd if he could find something less strenuous for him to do. Dr. Lloyd didn't know Daddy personally, but he knew who he was. And he knew some of the people Daddy had worked with in the Y. Dr. Lloyd assured me he'd do whatever he could. A couple of weeks after I returned to Saginaw, I got a call from Mama. She said that Bob DeFrance, the Director of Community Action Against Poverty, had offered Daddy a job as a youth counselor. The DeFrance family had known Daddy for many years. Bob's dad, Fabron DeFrance Sr., was Executive Secretary at the YMCA during many of the years Daddy volunteered there. Daddy was floored by the offer. He couldn't imagine having a desk job. He'd always done manual labor. As an uneducated black man born at the beginning of the 20th century, he hadn't expected to do anything else. He was grateful to be healthy and strong enough to work steadily. At Community Action Against Poverty, he would not only make more money than he'd ever earned, but for the first time in his life, He'd wear a suit and tie to work. Paying off his mortgage would be a snap, and the heaviest thing he had to lift was a pen. Daddy worked at Community Action Against Poverty for five years and loved every minute of it. 
When he retired at 67, he felt superfluous. Except for holidays and annual two-week vacations, he'd worked every day of his life since he was a child. Daddy didn't know what to do with himself without a job. His volunteer work had also tapered off over the years. With Mama's encouragement, Daddy had trained younger people to take over most of his church duties. Many of the neighborhood improvements he had lobbied for had been made. So what was next? With little to do, he seemed sad, and his health began to fail. His physician advised us all to come home to see him for perhaps a final time in 1971. But Daddy rallied after telling me in the hospital, the Bible only promises us three score and ten. Daddy was referring to the tenth verse of Psalm 90. The days of our years are three score and ten a verse he had often quoted. At Christmas of that year, he and Mama took their first airplane trip to visit me in California. The following summer, they drove to Delaware and visited my sister and her family. But by then, Daddy had weakened and lost much of his customary cheerfulness. When Kamal, his last grandchild, was three months old, I took him to visit both sets of grandparents. Daddy held his spiritual heir in his arms a few months before he died in 1973. He had turned 70 four months earlier. We were stunned. Although we knew Daddy wasn't well, we still did not believe he would die so young. Grandpa and his brothers, Daddy's uncles, had lived well past age 80, and we expected Daddy to do the same. I couldn't stand. Stand it. I was 36 years old, but I was still daddy's girl, and the child in me believed him to be indestructible. What was I going to do now? He was the only person I always knew had my back. With him gone, I felt exposed and unprotected. Mama and daddy had been married 46 years. Because she didn't have any encouragement for her own dreams, Mama put her creative energies into flower gardening, making quilts, and encouraging her husband and children. She was 67 when she lost her partner and the dynamic center of her life. She frequently reminisced about the work Daddy had done in the community where the family church was located. Mama worked closely with Daddy, and I had often heard them discussing what needed to be done, but she never asserted herself or sought credit for her efforts. After Mama died, we found several pages she had written about Daddy's accomplishments at the church. I feel certain they were written near the end of her life, when cataracts had dimmed her vision, because her small, neat handwriting was larger than usual. Although the pages were numbered and stapled together, they were out of order, and some were missing. Her writing was uncharacteristically repetitious with many misspelled words, but clearly it was a labor of love. She described in some detail his work with young people and how he built up the Sunday school at our church. She summarized in the following words, For many of these boys and girls, he helped to get jobs, encouraged them to stay in school, go to college. If one of them got in trouble, he'd go to jail to see them, help them get a lawyer. If they were sent away to reform school, he'd visit them, pray for them, talk encouragingly. He met resentment from some of them, but prayer and faith kept him going. When the Indianapolis Recorder, the black weekly newspaper, was preparing Daddy's obituary, they called to question the information we had provided. 
The reporter said we hadn't mentioned where Daddy went to school. She was shocked to learn that his formal education ended at fourth grade. Daddy would have loved that his obituary and a large picture were on the front page of the recorder, above the fold, on September 29, 1973. Even the Indianapolis Star, the major daily paper, gave Daddy six inches with a picture on September 22nd. The week following the obituary, the recorder ran an editorial about Daddy, titled, One Man in Death. It said, in part, Highly regarded throughout the city, he was a prime example of determination, since all his civic and professional attainments were made without the benefit of formal education. Future generations may make little note of Smith H. Cheatham, and probably few today realize men of his caliber reside in Indianapolis. Aside from concerning himself with the support of a family, he found time to encourage the less determined and give relentless efforts toward bettering the community. His legacy to the world, try despite shortcomings. The ballad of John Henry reminds me of my daddy. John Henry worked so hard he broke his poor heart. And he laid down his hammer and he died, Lord, Lord. He laid down his hammer and he died. Then they took John Henry to the graveyard and they buried him in the sand. Yes, and every locomotive come roaring by. Said, Bailey's a steel driving man. Lord, now Bailey's a steel driving man. I want to thank you for listening to Profiles. This was an important program to me, especially to air in the month of February. And I hope that you'll carry these stories, these voices, with you long after Black History Month is over. Because they matter. Beyond a hashtag, and certainly beyond the confines of 28 days, they matter. This has been your host, Leah Johnson. Stay woke. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.